My name is Olivia, and I am one of the members of the Garden Club here at First Pres. And today, after worship, we are uh, working with the Texas group out at one of the gardens to do some fall cleanup, which is why I'm dressed like this today. And this, the past couple weeks, I've been reflecting on this year, um, this past summer with this club, and some of the lessons that I have been reminded of and have learned, and I'd like to share some of those with you today. The first is, last spring, Pastor Jonathan offered a blessing. Well, first let me explain something. We have two gardens. We have a garden out in Betty's backyard. Um, It's this large plot of land, and we've called that the Hope Garden. And then we also tend to the raised beds here in the parking lot, and we call those the Grace Garden. So we have two gardens that we've been tending this summer. Okay, number one. Last spring, Pastor Jonathan offered a blessing at the Hope Garden for a plentiful bounty. The garden club gathered around and bowed our heads as he prayed over the soil. Then we winced as we watched him pour the blessed water on top of a weed. We feared this blessing would make the weeds plentiful, which they were, but we don't blame Pastor Jonathan. (laughs) But what I was reminded of this summer was that even the most undesirable are worthy of prayer and blessings. Number two. In May, when the Faith Forest kids scattered zinnia seeds in the Grace Garden, some of the seeds landed in the small soil cracks between the raised beds and the concrete parking lot. These in-between flowers took root, bloomed, and fed butterflies and bumblebees. This summer, I was reminded of the importance of growing where you are planted. Number three. Last spring, it dawned on the garden club the amount of work that was going to be needed to get the garden started. A-frames needed to be built, seeds needed planting, the garden needed weeding, We felt overwhelmed with the task list, so we put a call out to John Hall and asked, Reed begged, to help, to get help from the Compromans. On a cool spring day, the Compromans and their mentors showed up at the Hope Garden, and together we completed the work in record time. And since then, I have asked myself many times, who does God need me to show up for today? Number four. The Hope Garden has an intricate system of soaker hoses that are buried under the soil and needed to be dug out and carefully placed near the seeds. These hoses are brittle, and we had to be extremely careful when moving them. This summer, I was reminded, especially after these last two years, we're all a bit fragile and in need of tenderness and care. Number five. Last May, some gardeners went to the Hope Garden to harvest radishes, and they found a baby deer sleeping inside the garden. It looked to be just a few days old, could barely stand. Our best guess was that in its hunt for good food, it got separated from its mother. One of the gardeners bravely wrapped the fawn in a blanket, lifted it off of the ground, and set it free outside of the fence where it stumbled and ran and hid behind a woodpile. I was reminded how God calls us to care for all of his creation, and when our hearts are set in a place of love, he will give us the strength and courage to tend to others. And finally, 
we kept tally of all that we harvested from both the Hope and the Grace Garden. The members of the Garden Club delivered this produce to many local food pantries to help those who face food insecurity. At the end of October, we tallied that we donated approximately 450 pounds of produce. And I was reminded that God is good all the time. Will you pray with me, please? Dear God, we are so grateful for the ministries of this church. We're grateful how we can use our hands and our spirits and our energy to minister to our communities, that we can come together in strength and in love through you and spread your love throughout the world. In your loving name we pray. Amen. This morning's first scripture reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and then chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that you may be so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you've been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. We will uh, next Sunday be returning to the story of Ruth and pick up that section. But today I wanted to spend a little more time with the gospel lesson um, because I I have a sword. Gospel of Mark, 10th chapter, uh, beginning, I'm sorry, 12th chapter, beginning with verse 38. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd put money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth about a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer.
Forgive us for pursing, dividing, chopping, explaining, when all you really want is all of who we are, our whole selves. Help us to hear your word and to know that that yoke is easy, that burden light. To the glory of Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to read you a little something from my alma mater's website. It goes, For over 70 years, the University of Chicago's advisory councils, formerly known as visiting committees, have supported the divisions and schools they serve, have communicated the work of those units to the university's senior leadership, including the president, provost, board of trustees, and the world at large and through informed advocacy have enriched the relationship of the university and its closest friends. Members join a network of civic, corporate, and cultural leaders and play a demonstratively positive role in the university's growth and success. Members of advisory councils are important volunteer leaders, both for the unit on which their council is focused and for the university as a whole. The chairs of these councils, in partnership with deans and directors, help steer the work of the councils and are important research both to the deans and the university's senior leadership. By being knowledgeable about strategic initiatives and academic priorities of the university in the broader context, the chair's input and advice to the university president and other university leaders is both greatly appreciated and extremely helpful. Now, (laughs) Sounds extremely important. Advisory councils, wow. Except when I was an undergraduate, I used to assist the associate dean for the Division of the Social Sciences at the university to prepare for what we then called visiting committees on the social sciences. I understand this advisory council is now what it's called. Members of the visiting committees would arrive at the social sciences quad in limousines having been picked up from O'Hare Airport or a downtown luxury hotel, uh, we would have appointed one of the dark wood paneled lounges with fine linens and silver service and fresh flowers. One end of the room was uh, full of a top shelf liquor stocked bar and a white shirted bartender with a little bow tie and a vest was on the there uh, to fulfill orders and on the other end of the room were hot and cold hors d'oeuvres. Uh, hors d'oeuvres, by the way, are little snacks that have way too many vowels. Anyway, you get the picture of the room. Greetings were all around for the 12 to 18 dignitaries, many of whom had names that I had heard. Names like Blair, Baird, Warner, Rockefeller, McCormick, MacArthur, Cronkite. Keep in mind, my job was to stock the ice bins behind the bar and to break down the cardboard boxes in the basement. Gawking was not permitted. After an hour or so, we went a few doors down the hall to a small lecture room that had been closed all day long. The reason why it was closed was is that they actually cleaned the lecture hall, something they never did for the, for the students. I'd never seen it so spotless. It was actually glorious. But there, the dean of the social sciences division would offer an introductions and two or three professors would give lectures on their area of research. Since it was the University of Chicago and it was the Social Science Division, these lectures were equally familiar names, like Friedman, Lucas, Stigler, Bellow, yes, Saul Bellow, uh, Schultz, 
Theodore Scholz, became Secretary of State for a while. And even though these were pretty profound dignitaries that uh, I knew, uh, we were always jealous of the Physical Sciences Division because they could drag out Carl Sagan. There was then a lengthy Q&A, after which they returned to the first room, which had been completely cleaned, vacuumed, and reset. And there were large overstuffed chairs and little sitting groups. And each sitting group was actually hosted by a member of what was then called the Development Department. Uh, it's now called the Institutional Advancement Department, but you know why they were there. It was also then my job to push out the little aperitif cart while the tender would fulfill the orders. These smaller setting groups were where real serious conversations took place about the needs of the university and about the ways in which the visiting committee could offer a profound impact on the future of research at this community of scholars. Some members of the visiting committees would just reach in their vest pocket and pull out a pre-filled envelope. In other words, they decided how much they were going to give even before the event started. Nothing prepared me for the ministry more than that moment. Think about it. <laughs> Others referred the university representative to some staff member or a personal assistant to theirs, but we know what's going on here, right? Lest you think all this work was in vain, let me tell you a little math. At the time when I was rolling the aperitif cart around the social sciences lounge, the endowment of the University of Chicago stood at $750 million. Now, it's more than 11 times that, at $8.5 billion. Now, don't be cynical. Um, keep in mind that over that same period of time, the University of Chicago increased its enrollment by 30%. Or to do the math another way, the endowment when I was a student there was $62,500 a student. Now, including graduate and undergraduate, the endowment of the University of Chicago is a half a million dollars a student. Don't be impressed. The University of Chicago is small potatoes compared to Harvard University, 40.5% billion dollars, or about $2.8 million a student. No wonder Malcolm Gladwell refers to major endowed American universities as hedge funds, with little schools kept for fundraising purposes. Meanwhile, about eight blocks away from that occasional job in social sciences, I volunteered every Friday night, eight blocks away, at a little place where two Carmelite nuns bought an abandoned storefront. Knocking out the walls, and painting and cleaning and making curtains, they configured a little kitchen and space for 120 homeless women and children housed in a massive dormitory area. One quarter was set aside for child care and toddler play, and the opposite corner was set aside for after-school homework. The place was an orderly madhouse, but always there was an abundance of laughter, and almost always an abundance of food. Not great food, but practical calories. Down the street was a little Carmelite parish. During the day, the nuns would care for the little ones, and moms would go to conference rooms in the parish to learn job skills, how to read, simple math. There was a clothing closet for job interviews, and for clothing for school for the children, coats, 
tennis shoes. I could tell you the names of the residents. I could even tell you the names of the nuns themselves, but trust me, you won't recognize one of them. As Jesus sat with his disciples at the cafe across the street from the temple, we think that Jesus is talking about money and the little widow putting in her last two coins in a box marked for the poor. And on one level, it is a story about money, trumpets and parades and little bar carts and hors d'oeuvre trays squeezing big checks out of fat cats. But it is about more than that. It's about laud. It's about honor. It's about what impresses us. It's about what we may call a saint, but then what do we honor with saintly accoutrements? That day at the temple, there is some parody between the haves and the have-nots. We don't know the names of either the big donors or the little widow who gave her all. They're referenced in our gospel lesson, but we do not have their identities for perpetuity. Two run, nuns ran St. Martin de Poor's House of Hope. They were, by everyone's external telling, saints, but they were eking out a meager living, eating the same powdered milk and government cheese as their guests, serving serving the least among us with dignity and discipline, a hand-to-mouth existence, an admirable commitment to a life of service. They're both gone now, but so are the Bairds and the McCormicks and the Blairs and the Cronkites, even the Bellows and the Freedmans and the Stiglers. Uh, but out of a sense of decency, here we are on All Saints Sunday. And I want you to remember them. Two nuns who labored in anonymity, and in both cases, until literally the week they died. Serving, caring, Laughing, loving, feeding, housing. Sister Connie Driscoll. Sister Teresa O'Sullivan. Amen. As we are here in the middle of pledging season, stewardship season, um, our little little bar carts to try and convince you to be generous with your church. I think it is important that we recognize that sitting in front of you and to your right and to your left and to behind you, unless you're in the very last pew in the sanctuary, are some saints. Some saints who have done amazing things and we don't have plaques with their names. We don't have little events that celebrate their generosity. But many of them have given hours of their lives 
on their knees in prayer for many, for you. Some have come in during the week, and in the winter the sanctuary is cold, and in the summer it is hot, and they wanted to make sure that the little offering envelopes and the special offering envelopes and the pews were in order so that you would not be distracted when you sat in your pew. Some have come in and dusted and cleaned to help take some of the pressure off of our custodial staff. Others are, as we speak, up in, out in Faith Forest with our kids. Some shook your hand, looked you in the eye, said, I missed you. I'm glad you're here. All of those gifts are of great value, especially the gifts that include the wholeness of oneself, the widow that put in all that she had to live on. It is not the draconian suggestion that you should go and empty your accounts and scoop them into the church's offering plate. It is that we should all recalibrate what we think is valuable and who it is we value. Churches of our size can operate on literally one-tenth of what we have. And that does not make them any less church. Because within those pews, like ours, are people who truly make our community a home for hope. They offer the meaning in Christ that allows them to look at you and say, you are important to me because you are important to God. And they offer the purpose because they go from this place energized to give of themselves, to give of their time, to offer love and encouragement to those who are among us who are the least and the last and the lonely and the lost. It is about how we share it is about who we are. Both you and I have been in profoundly beautiful houses, sometimes on tours like San Simeon or glorious castles in Europe. They are beautifully appointed, but they're not homes. What makes a home a home is the life the food, the greeting, the ease, the care, the attention, and the welcome. What makes that home a home for hope is the promise that we'll do it next week and the week after that, and that there are yet to be discovered men and women, boys and girls, who will be touched by our generosity. Many of them right here in this very room, others a half a world away, waiting for clean water in El Salvador. It is hope that this home will become for others what we need and know it to be for us, a home for hope, a home for hope. It is no accident that in my picking a home for hope as the theme I had in the back of my head, Sister Connie, 
and Sister Therese because they ran a shelter. It was called a house for hope. But their love made it a home. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Create in us, O Lord, hearts that are so yours that when we encounter someone that you love, our hearts jump within us because we are encountering one whom you find precious. In giving all of ourselves to you, giving our, our time and our resources and our energy and imaginations and our loves and our futures and our directions and our hopes, we become malleable witnesses to your grace. So as we consider the resources we have and the choices we need to make, make us courageous, not cautious, protecting our own, holding back, looking askance, but instead completely open to the possibilities that what you have given to us is enough, enough to be generous, enough to share, enough to be your servants in your grand household, even as your Son taught us, and even as we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power.